As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by Stuart Mandel. And, Stu, we finally have games that have been played. How's that feel? It's been a heck of a weekend, Bruce, and it's not even over. We're recording this on Monday morning. We've got one more game, Florida State, Virginia Tech, tonight. It's been fabulous. Yeah, it has. Uh, Before we get to, we're going to play a little bit of a game here. It's kind of as we are prone to do. And I think this always existed with college football and certainly college football media about we get sucked into like the overreaction and overstatements. I think it's worsened because there's Twitter and we all kind of get heightened into a frenzy on some of this stuff. But before we get into a little true or false or buy or sell. I love how you're creating games every week now, by the way. I got a lot of time on airplanes, too. That's why. Maybe Tim Brando, you know, we played that one with Brando last week, and then he ended up having like three hours to kill at that poor Nebraska game that got canceled. So maybe he's got a whole new version of it by now. I'd rather see that than Tim's dance moves. So, (laughs) By the way, the more Tim's dance moves, it seems like it gets in the longer his pants get. I've seen. I'm in a sports bar late Saturday night, and I'm watching, and I'm just thinking for the the crew, much less certainly for the fans and everybody else involved, that's got to be so deflating for for people who – get out are all amped up for that game and then there's no game i know they literally made it to opening kickoff had the opening kickoff it was a touchback and then that was the end of it but man weather really really wreaked havoc on iowa state's game was canceled as well and then you were uh, at maryland texas which had a long delay ohio state had a long delay so west virginia west virginia tennessee had a delay Look, I, I feel like this is happening way more and more. It's certainly because now there's more safety issues in place. And I don't think you want to be the person to go, well, we should get rid of this and just, just play through the lightning because obviously that's not a smart thing. All right, Stu, we're going to go through the biggest 
I don't know if I would call them tent poles, maybe let's say that. Why don't we start with the, what I thought was the most compelling matchup of the opening week. Auburn beats Washington in a very tight game. And I want to spin it here because Auburn has a brutal schedule of three really tough SEC road games. But the Pac-12 was 1-8 and eight last year in the bowl season. It was not a good week for the conference beyond just Washington's result. How dim do you think the prospects for the Washington playoff hopes, but for even for the rest of the Pac-12 potentially are after after week one, given how bad it was going last year? Well, I had said all along going into it that a Washington loss would be hard for the conference because they're the you know the overwhelming favorite. Now they don't have much margin for error. They, they would you know based on the the four years of the playoff to date. They're going to have to turn around and go undefeated from here. Very hard to do in a nine-game conference schedule. Now, maybe this turns out to be a year where there are two lost teams in the playoff. It's going to happen at some point. And certainly, it wasn't like they got embarrassed in that game. It went down to the wire. Auburn had to put together a game-winning drive. So, to that respect, you know, I think they put themselves in a hole. But it's not one of these situations where you want to just eliminate the whole conference after one week. So do you think right now, is Washington still the team with the best prospects to come out of the Pac-12 and make a playoff? Or, I mean, Stanford had their hands full for a while with San Diego State and then took over in the second half. I thought Uh, KJ Costello looked really good, by the way. I can Um, give my expert uh, firsthand expertise on this one. I was actually at the Stanford-San Diego State game. And the interesting thing in that game was San Diego State, to its credit, completely shut down Bryce Love. He never really had an impact in that game. Yet Stanford ended up winning comfortably because J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, their stud receiver, ended up with over 200 yards and three touchdowns. So it's kind of what I thought would happen with Stanford this year. They'd be a much more complete offense, much more explosive offense. Can't imagine Bryce Love is going to have many games like that this year. But am I ready to say now they're the favorite, not Washington? No, not yet. At the end of the day, that Washington game, they blew, if you watch that game, they had several great opportunities in the red zone and just completely blew it, including a, a decision that the, you know their coaches admitted afterward was regrettable to try to run the option at the goal line with Jake Browning, who is by no means an option quarterback. So now I will say the one thing negative I, I would say coming out of that for Washington is it was yet another big quote unquote big game that where Jake Browning struggled. Uh, you know he just has not had. For all the wins he's had, he's not had, you know, many signature performances in big games. So, so with that in mind, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be hard. And then also the fact that, you know, you and I are very high in Arizona. They go out and lay an egg in week one. Obviously, UCLA did as well, but we weren't really considering them to be part of the race. You know, USC, JT Daniels, nice debut, but they... They have 300 yards plus on the ground to UNLV. I think that... You know, I'm going to watch more of that game today just because uh, our cruise game this weekend is USC at Stanford. I watched the Stanford game, but I didn't have a chance to see USC yet. And but just looking at it and talking to people around it, it was like, and it's not like UNLV is like some triple option wizardry team or anything like that. I think that's got to be concerning and and how, you know, just how good they are up front. I mean, but it's I just, think we're going to find out a lot more about, about them this weekend on the road. Certainly. It's just too early to go eliminating whole conferences. I mean, if you, if you were going to put one conference that's probably had the, the, the most um, humbling weekend, it would be the ACC with Miami getting crushed by LSU. That was supposed to be, you know, uh, Clemson's biggest challenger. 
in the ACC. Obviously, Louisville did not put up a fight against Alabama. What if Clemson, somebody brought this up, what if Clemson goes and loses to AM this week? Then you're going to be talking about the ACC as not having a shot at the playoffs. So, Let's, are, you writing, uh, are, you let's, writing, let's, are you writing off Eric Dungy already? Did you not watch the fight and toughness in him? Oh man, that was—I did not see any of that game. But you know, you know, you know, I'm a big uh, Dino Babers, Eric Dungy fan. Also, the mighty BC Eagles—we've we, yet to see fully what they've got in them. Anyway, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not a, It's week one. Let's not eliminate anybody from the playoff yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, but since you touched on it. Miami looked really sloppy on on Sunday night. I keep wanting to call it Monday night on Sunday night against LSU. You know, I, I was that was an interesting matchup, and I think it falls into because it's the national TV game. You know, not to say that those other games on Saturday aren't that, but when you have that that slot to yourself, and you know, whenever we talk about overreactions from Week One, I think back to a couple of years ago. There was a riveting game between Texas and Notre Dame. It was a Joe Tess was going wild in it and everything like that. And I think, you know, it just, everybody got over their skis on that about who was back and everything like that. And, and both teams actually underwhelmed from there on in. In the case of this matchup, I still think LSU is going to, is going to, uh, is going to have to struggle to get to seven or eight wins, but their defense is really good. I, I think what you saw were two really good defenses. But Miami was extremely sloppy, and they just did not look very buttoned up at all. Even if it was only week one, it was even worse than I'd expected from them. Can Miami rebound and have a, 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 the kind of season they hope to have with Malik Rozier as their quarterback? You know, I think they can, they can win their division. I just think there's still a gap between them and Clemson. And here's a good example. We all know Clemson should have the best D-line in the country. LSU has a really good D-line. They have a really good defense. The biggest reasons why I think Miami is nowhere near, is not close to being quote unquote back, is because they're very underwhelming on the offensive line and have been so for a while. And that got exposed. Malik Rozier, I think, is, he actually made some pretty good throws early on. And then I just think the pressure kind of got to him. And, you know, the skill talent wise, Jeff Thomas is a big time guy. Amon Richards is still coming back from like a camp injury, I think. They have some playmakers, but just offensive line-wise, I just don't think they're anywhere near a top-five kind of team. I think they're a top-25 team because I do think they're really good on defense. But, you know, to me, they're probably a 9-3 and three kind of team. I just think that they are not there yet. They do not. Malik is decent quarterback. He's not. I don't think he's a special, like, NFL kind of starter. And if you don't have that and you have a really underwhelming offensive line, no matter how good your defense is, I don't think you're going to beat, you can overtake Clemson at this point. Yeah, I just so, don't see it. No, that's not going to happen. That doesn't mean they can't have that 9-3 and three kind of season you talked about. You know, I did worry with Miami coming into the season and all the attention and expectations they were getting that as, as fun as the turnover chain was last year, there's a lot of luck involved in turnovers that can go the other way the next year. And in this game in particular, um, Miami had two turnovers that resulted in 10 LSU points. LSU had no turnovers. Miami had 11 penalties that resulted in 85 yards. It's funny. If you look at the box score and you didn't know who won the game, you might have thought Miami won the game. Well, but, a little of that, though, is you know LSU got really conservative when they're up, whatever was, 30-3. to three. I mean, Miami, it's a little bit like what happens when – Another team, you can go back a year ago sure. when, when Josh Rosen starts lighting up the A&M secondary and throwing it all over the place. I mean, 
that sometimes will happen in a game where the other team really doesn't, you know, tries to not get aggressive and just basically wants to win the game and move on. I think that's a function of what happened. Well, I give a lot of credit to LSU. Remember, this team was picked, finished fifth in the SEC West. They were 25th. Like, these are very low preseason expectations for an LSU team. One of the concerns that you and I have talked about on this podcast was their running game. Nick Brissett, who rode the bench basically for his first three years, comes out has a 50-yard touchdown run, finishes with 125 yards and two touchdowns. That's very encouraging for them. But I would just say, let's be a little cautious here. It wasn't like their offense came out and dominated Miami. Joe Burrow in his debut, 11 of 24 for 140 yards. So all I'm uh, saying is, let's, let's, let's not... This is going to be a recurring theme of today's episode. Don't get too carried away based on one game. Okay, before we get to one thing I think you might get carried away on, uh, just on Joe Burrow, I, the numbers to me do not tell how well he played. And here's why. Yeah, 11 and 24, I get that. There were some big drops from the LSU receivers. The other thing was he made some very smart decisions, especially audibling. He set up that Nick set 50-yard touchdown run. He had a couple other key you know, mental decisions. Also, Miami last year led the country in sacks, and they should, still, they should be every bit as nasty up front. You know, they didn't have Gerald Willis last year. They got him now, and he was actually the biggest bright spot for Miami. But uh, so they still got a lot of pressure on on him. He didn't wasn't taking sacks. I think he got sacked one time in the first three quarters when the game really mattered. And he did show a lot of mobility, and I thought he made really good decisions. If they can catch, you know, be a little more consistent with the receivers, I think that's a positive sign. As far as Nick Bro set. I don't care who you are. Just about anybody would have sat behind Leonard Fournette and Darius Geis, but I, I don't. I do not think he's he's a good back. I don't think he's a great back. I don't think he's what you think of as a special running back. But that can be good enough to get them to be a, a top fifteen team because their defense is just going to be so good. I think so. Uh, but I wanted to move on to something that I think you can be a little more definitive of, and that is. Where do you stand right now on Jim Harbaugh with how Michigan played against Notre Dame? I mean, it. it I know Chase Winovich said it didn't feel like they got dominated. To me, it felt like Notre Dame was clearly the better team after watching that game. Oh, they definitely got dominated at the line of scrimmage. Uh, Chase Winovich may have been referring to, I, I think he was referring to, I've read the, the, those quotes, you know, Notre Dame got up 14 nothing pretty quickly on two drives, and then maybe he's saying the rest of the way they kind of held their own. I mean, certainly in the second half, it seemed like there was a guy in Brandon Wimbush's face every every play. But Brandon Wimbush, to his credit, and he's a guy who I um, was very skeptical of on this podcast, to his credit, had a really good game. And on that, there was one drive in particular. They didn't end up scoring a touchdown because they got called back. But he led them down the field even after... I get it. I remember Devin Bush just like throwing him down like a rag doll. Got right back up and and led them down the field. It's it's not uh, you know if you're a Michigan fan, you waited eight months for this. I wrote about this Monday morning. Shea Patterson's going to be the answer. We got it all going, and then you go out and you're like, well, this looks exactly the same as last year. Can't run the ball. Getting dominated up front. I do think Shea Patterson showed some flashes of why he's an upgrade from the quarterbacks they had before. I don't think he played poorly but they still seem to have the same problems up front. So then it gets to, well, does this just mean that Notre Dame is about to have a special season, is particularly dominant up front, that, that you know this will be one of the best defenses they face all season, or is Michigan going to lose four or five games again? 
I think they could be eight and four. I, I mean, I, I, I was underwhelmed by what they look like, to be honest. I did think that Wimbush was really impressive in how he managed everything. And I thought Notre Dame's defense looks like it could be really, really a problem for a lot of people. You know, I, I think they're very athletic. They're really good up front. And uh, that stood out to me. To me, they look like they're a a ten or eleven win team, and Notre Dame looks like a, I mean, I'm sorry, Michigan looks like an eight and four team. And then, if that's the case, and when you lose a game like this, we had Braylon Edwards tweet and call out, you know, Braylon Edwards, former Michigan, you know, Michigan great, called out a couple of Michigan players. I think he in, referred to the program as trash or referred to somebody as trash. Uh, Jim Harbaugh had to defend that on Monday morning on his press conference. And the point is. With something on that like that big of a stage, where is Jim Harbaugh with this program right now? I don't think he's on the hot seat because I don't think they're going to fire him. I don't think he has any, any jeopardy of that. But what do you make of it right now? I, I feel like maybe Ralph Russo pointed this out and said, maybe this is just the reality of where Michigan football is. No matter who you get, you're probably not going to be have somebody who can get you to where Clemson is, to where Alabama is right now. I think more more pertinent to them to where Ohio State is. And that may be true. Um, I would say if you get to the end of year four with Jim Harbaugh, a guy who resurrected Stanford football, took the 49ers to the Super Bowl, and you're still going eight and four, that probably says more about Michigan football than it does about Harbaugh. But no question, he he's getting all the criticism right now. He's brought it on himself. Uh, it was pointed out many times on Saturday night that he is now 9-9 nine and nine in his last 18 games. By the way, as Ari Wasserman, our Ohio State writer, pointed out, that is one more loss than Urban Meyer has had in his entire time at Ohio State. But, <laughs> but then you think, okay, not, I went and looked it up. I was like, really? 9-9? Nine and nine? That dates to the loss to Iowa in early November of the 2016 season, which at that point they were 9-0. and oh. So that's how quickly this is swung. You know, late into his, that would have been his second season at Michigan, they were right in the heart of national championship contention, 9-0. and They lose maybe 10-0. and No, 9-0. and They lose to Iowa in a close game on the road, and then two weeks later they lose to Ohio State and they, uh, on the, you know, JT Barrett fourth down spot. And it's almost like that, ever since that game, they haven't, something happened because ever since then they've been very average. So it's a unique situation. A couple of our friends in the national media outlets wrote the Jim Harbaugh hot seat column on Saturday night. I'm with you. He's not going to get fired. They've invested so much in him. He's got so many allies uh, in Ann Arbor. Also, I would point out, and I looked this up, his buyout, I don't have the exact number, but his buyout would be over $15 million to fire him. Now, could he just decide to leave? Uh, maybe, although I don't think he's going to be as sought after by the NFL as he might have been a couple years ago. So, you know, let's see. They have a brutal schedule. Wisconsin, Northwestern, Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, all of those teams won 10 games last season. Some looked better than others in week one, but let's not. Here's one thing I hate about week one. Appalachian State almost beats Penn State. Right, took a great Trace, Trace McSorley drive at the end to save them, and now it's oh Penn State's overrated. We got you know Bruce, you got you know hey you want to take it back saying he's James Franklin's not overrated. It was one game. Like many teams have had 
close calls in the first game and gone on to have great seasons. I'm, you know, and frankly, with with the amount of youth on Penn State, it doesn't entirely surprise me. They could still end up and, being very good. And also, Appalachian State is really good. They're that really well coached. That first year uh, starting quarterback for them looked great. Well, I do think the the biggest concern right now to me for Penn State is the, their defensive line, especially in the middle of it, has some issues. Yeah, and I, I think Again. that was ex- that was exposed a little bit. One thing that somebody had had said to me the other day, and I think I was in a you know was kind of looking back at this. Now I didn't pick them to come out of the playoff. I picked I picked uh, to come out of the Big Ten to go to the playoff. I actually have Wisconsin doing that, but. Uh, Somebody was like, "Well, if you if you struggle with the Sun Belt team, you have no shot." I'm going to read to you what uh, Andy, I believe, from San Francisco said. Still think Penn State's a playoff. I think he means contester. No playoff contender struggles with a Sun Belt team. Well, actually, Clemson barely survived against a Sun Belt team two years ago, and that Clemson team ended up winning a national title. So. You can have that, and you can struggle and everything, and, and teams get scares. And the important part is they still came out with a win on that. Now, again, Trace McShore I think is terrific, and I think he really showed up in a big way. Was there other guys that similarly, that maybe were more of a test than you you would have expected from week one? Maybe it was a game that you was like, oh, that's going to be a two or three touchdown game and turned out to be kind of a nail-biter. First of all, I just want to say about Trace McSorley, he got so overlooked the last couple of years because he was on the same team as Saquon Barkley. He's a he's a he's an exceptional college quarterback. He's got a little bit of I'm not saying this from a skill set, but just kind of his moxie and everything, a little bit of Baker Mayfield in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's one reason why, despite all the many many key players Penn State had to replace, that I felt like they might still be pretty good this year. Uh, close calls that I wasn't expecting. Kansas State, a team that. I fully expected to be much improved and possibly in the hunt in the Big 12. Almost lost to South Dakota. That's not good. Although at least they didn't lose to Nichols, like our friends, the Kansas Jayhawks. That was a brutal uh, loss. I mean, why uh, don't Michigan we just talk? Sta- about- Michigan State had their hands full with Utah. State. Yeah, but that's an annual tradition. I swear they, I swear they always look terrible in that Friday night opener, and then they go on and win ten games. So I'm reading. Uh, I'm going to read nothing into that. No, I think you'd have to talk about your game. I fully expected Texas to handle Maryland this year, in part because of what turmoil and the tragedy that Maryland's had to deal with. So for Texas to go and lose that game again in Tom Herman's second season, you know, you talk about teams that got close call. It wasn't a close call. They flat out lost this game. And as much as we were just talking about Harbaugh and perceptions of him, Tom Herman now starting to get the backlash that, frankly, I would not have guessed would happen this soon, given we are... You know, around the time of that Harbaugh-Iowa loss I was talking about was when Tom Herman was the hottest coach in college football towards the end of his second year at Houston. Well, yeah, I know what I've noticed a little bit in the fallout after that was whether, okay, I, I think it was Anwar Richardson who, who works for Orange Bloods had tweeted something out either Sunday night or Monday morning about how Tom Herman has become more involved in the offense. And that has become kind of quite a subplot there with Tim Beck being the offensive coordinator. And you talk to Tom Herman, he will tell you, look, if the offense isn't good, it's on me. And he has said he was as involved now as he was when he was at Houston. And similar to what Urban Meyer was when he was the head coach, at uh, when he was working for him. So I, I think there's, there's some elements of that. You know, he told me at halftime or at the end of the second quarter, you know, we talked for a little bit. And he said, 
you know what? We were really struggling. We're in our own heads. I want to get everything, kind of get these guys settled down. So his, his answer to that is to go up tempo. And it helped for a while. And ultimately, what I think the challenge with this team is they press a lot. They pressed under Charlie Strong. And mentally, I think the focus gets a little away from them. They have some really good-looking players, you know, whether it's Colin Johnson, where you think, okay, this guy should be dominant. You still have a real young quarterback in Sam Ellinger who hasn't played a ton, and he misses some throws, he misses some reads, and it's hard for them to get into a rhythm. And then they have some they had some turnovers down the stretch, and that even after you deal with the emotional ride of this. Now, one thing that I think is will get lost in this a little bit, and it shouldn't. Maryland's got quite a bit of talent on their offense. I mean, they let's not forget this team when they had two healthy quarterbacks put up 50 on Todd Orlando's defense last year and they have much better running backs now than they did when it was basically just Ty Johnson they have five really good running backs the freshman they had from Florida Jay Sean Jones who did something I don't think it's been done in like since Marcus Marota did it threw for a touchdown ran for a touchdown and caught a touchdown I mean these guys have a lot of good pieces they have a lot of experience on the offensive line so I don't think it was a huge upset. I think the wild card in this was because of, and this is what I want to get into, a little transition into a bit, just because of what Maryland had been through for the last month, nobody knew what they were going to, what their emotional state was going to be. And I can tell you this from firsthand experience, those players were so emotionally invested in the game. And I think to the staff's credit, and to Matt Canada's credit, as well as you know the rest of the guys on that staff, they were focused. It wasn't like it was just lots of penalties and 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 emotions spilling over. I thought it was channeled well. I thought they really, you know, Kasim Hill, even though his numbers weren't awesome, I could see why he can be a big time guy because he's cerebral, he's smart, he's a big dude. He's like six two two thirty five, and he fits in what they want to do. So I think there was a lot of positives and. Just to kind of go a little further on this, just because we've talked so much, you know, a lot of people talked about Maryland and everything that's going on there. What I would just convey to you, Stu, and, and to our audience is from where we sit out on the ex- outside of it, so much of that story is about the quote unquote toxic culture and the DJ Durkin part. And the part that when you get around those guys, as I was for a couple of days, is it's really, it was all about they lost their teammate, Jordan McNair. And unless you're physically around it, I think you kind of like there was not a lot on the DJ Durkin part. It was all on the Jordan McNair and how are we going to honor this guy's legacy and what it meant to their teammates and losing. And and I, I think it was a good reminder of like, OK, here's what matters internally. And so, yes, I get it. The DJ Durkin story is a significant one around around that program and it's kind of hovering over it. But I think it's just to see how those players responded and, and the legacy of Jordan McNair and what he meant to those guys. That was ultimately a much bigger story to them. College football players are pretty resilient. You know, obviously it was a, it was a, it was a really heartwarming scene at the end of that game to see them, you know, celebrating and waving the flag with his number on it in terms of the uh, scandal, the strength coach being fired, DJ Durkin on leave. I mean, we'll see if that has any sort of toll later in the season. If maybe we saw, Maryland at its best in the first game, and it goes downhill from here. If this is actually uh, an indication that they're going to be pretty good, but real quick, I want to circle back. You mentioned a little bit earlier when we were talking about Michigan, 
Braylon Edwards and his comments. Yes. Yeah, as we are recording this, Big Ten Network has put out a statement that effective as of Sunday, September 2nd, Braylon Edwards has been suspended indefinitely from his role as an analyst there for his for a violation of the network's social media guidelines. I guess their social media guidelines prohibit you calling your alma mater trash and throwing out a bunch of curse words on um, Twitter. On that spot, on that part, I, you had retweeted something that I had seen this morning from our friend John Wilner, who does a phenomenal job covering all things Pac-12, and it was related to a Mark Jones, who's a play-by-play guy for ESPN, a tweet him kind of, I don't know, would you call it trolling uh, Washington? Yes. Out of bounds? What's your take on it? Because look, I mean, here I, I want to kind of bring this up here. We all, in the media, on Twitter, will occasionally take some shots that we probably wouldn't say, but on Twitter, it sometimes can get a little snarky. I don't know Mark Jones, but this is this is very strange. He's, he seems to have a real obsession with Washington and, and their cupcake schedule, as they called it last year. I mean, they went and played Auburn in Atlanta. They lost a close game, and Mark Jones tweets, you know, Washington took it on the chin. I guess they would have been better off playing Montana. So sports writers make snarky jokes like that all the time. And maybe this is a double standard. I don't know. That's what I was going to Sports ask. writers make snarky jokes like this all the time, and we consider it completely normal. I think the reason this was very jarring is you do not see that from play-by-play guys who probably are held to the highest standard of anybody about being neutral and objective. As you know, if you're a broadcaster, you go call a game. Peep the, the fans are just waiting for an opportunity to say, oh, you, you, this is a biased broadcast. You have it out for us, etc." So, I mean, at the very least, I would not put Mark Jones on a Washington game again anytime soon because he seems to have some sort of weird obsession with them that I frankly have n- never really seen from a, from a play-by-play guy on Twitter or otherwise. Like, I remember Mark May used to have his, you know, shtick about Ohio State but he was kind of a caricature of himself anyway, and he's in a studio show where they were wearing, where, where Reese Davis is wearing a judge robe. You know, I'm not going to put much stock on that, but Mark Jones is the guy who actually goes out to the games and calls the games for millions of people. You know, yes, I think he's held to a little bit higher standard. Uh, while we're talking media-related stuff, mm-hmm. uh, there's another story that got quite a bit of play, and I'll admit I weighed in on it a little bit as well on Sunday morning. It came to the post game of the Alabama Louisville game with Nick Saban and Maria Taylor, and a question she had asked him, and Nick Saban really snapped at her. And uh, what did you think when you saw the clip? I, I didn't see it live, so I, I actually saw it Sunday morning when I was trying to go to the airport. Well, first of all, let's just set it up with the fact that you know after eight months of suspense, Tua was the starter, and Tua was unbelievable. And left all of us thinking like, man, this feels a lot like when the Warriors added Kevin Durant. Alabama was already so good to begin with and, and won national championships with, with Jake Coker and among others as their quarterback. And now they've got this guy who sure looks like a bona fide, you know, superstar quarterback. Jalen Hurts played in the game, did not have as much of an, it wasn't bad, but did not have as much of an impact. So at this point, there's no, there's no, you know, avoiding it. He's, he is their quarterback. So Maria Taylor asks a perfectly legitimate question, given the circumstances, about how she just said she didn't even single out Tua. She said, well, "How would talk about your, you know, the performance of your quarterbacks?" And you kind of see the wheels spinning as he started to answer it, and then he just very bizarrely went all in on 
recurring theme this priest. Stop asking me about the quarterbacks. And in particular, he said something like, you know, if you're going to try to get me to disrespect one of the quarter, you know, I'm not going to do that. And so it was bizarre. He has since apologized for it because I don't know where he's getting this idea that people want him to disrespect or take a shot at Jalen Hurt. Like there's there's a way to just say, hey, you know, Tua was was great and Jalen Hurts helped us too without it being disrespectful of Jalen Hurts. I, I thought it was really over the top. He's come out and apologized for it. But even in his apology, Nick Saban was asked if he has regrets about the post-game interview. I talked to Maria and I could have handled it in a better way. But if I get asked to vilify a player and make another one crown prince publicly, I might not respond well to that. We apologize. He wasn't, he wasn't at, in, nobody's he wasn't asking asked to vilify, to vilify a player. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's some kind of distorted way to view that. And look, you you know, some people, and I'm sure Alabama fans would, some Alabama fans would say this. It's like, okay, you guys are just defending one of your own. Uh, full disclosure, we really like Maria. She's been good. You know, she was a guest on this podcast. And there's something in there that where you're saying, okay, people will look at it and go, you know what? This is, he was deflecting this to do this because it's all about winning's all that matters or, or, you know, the ends justify the means in there. And I just think that at the end of the day, it's like, all right, Dabo Sweeney's not doing this. There's a lot of other guys who are successful coaches who are not handling it this way. Really successful head coaches who wouldn't handle that that way. And look, Maria Taylor's not asking for anybody to, to have her back on this either. So it's part, it is part of the job when it comes to, to being a reporter. I don't know if he's being oversensitive because of, you know, what happened at SEC Media Days and when Jalen Hurts talked for the first time, said he was disappointed in, the, in you know, Nick Saban's answers to the questions about whether or not he might transfer. But I don't know what would be the harm at this point of saying, you know, Tua has been playing great. We're going to ride his hot hand for a while or something, but we're going to continue to play both, something like that. I mean, Kirby Smart's playing, you know, Jake Fromm led them to the National Soccer Game. He's giving Justin Fields an opportunity. Obviously, Clemson, Dabo's handling that right now with Trevor Lawrence. I don't know. I was going to ask you, though. I mean, I thought Maria could not have handled that much better. She was, comp- here's the, the, you know, the most prominent coach in the country basically yelling at her. And, her, and she goes, I hear you, and then keeps going. You're a sideline reporter. If you're interviewing Nick Saban and that happens, how do you think you would have handled it? Not as well as her. I'm not saying I would have snapped back. I just don't think I would have been as poised as she was. I would have been totally flustered. And, and it's one thing to like, how do you react? How do you react on, you know, if you're just a, a, a reporter, and I can speak to this from experience as you can, where you're, you're there and it's off camera and you're holding a pen and pad and nobody is physically... Uh, got your your face and everything else on HD, you can, uh, you know, you, you react differently. No one sees it, but here you're conscious of it, you know, where it's almost like you can't break character. I mean, just as an aside to this, so we have our, our weather delay, another one, over the weekend, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and just, you, you're trying to get reports from as many different people as you can who you think are have information about when the game's going to resume, and so I'm going to do a, a hit with Rob Stone back in the studio to give an update. And I can, w- I'm waiting for like three minutes for them to come to me. I've been given a different mic because just from, from frequency issues or whatever that's happening underneath the stadium. And so as I'm waiting, see that a couple of other, you know, a couple of the uh, different school officials, one from Texas, one from Michigan are starting to, to get together. And I was like, Hey, I got to go over there. Can you give me a minute? So I go over, I have to lower my, 
my IFB or the sound in my ear so I can hear them and have this conversation or be part of it for like a minute and a half. And I go back and I'm like waiting and don't realize like my producer's like pointing at me, not realizing that Rob Stone is talking to me only is I didn't turn my volume up on my hip loud enough. So I couldn't hear him. Like I could love to use the excuse. It was technical difficulties. Like there was some kind of audio issue. The, the technical difficulties of me, my brain was, I didn't remember to turn it up loud enough to hear him. But I just remembered, like I saw a clip, at least of somebody tweeted out a, a part of what I had said. And you could see like kind of the wheel spinning in my head as I'm trying to like kind of back to, to, to get, get things back on track. And, and that's nowhere near as significant as when emotions are up and you're trying to kind of navigate what is definitely a challenging situation. And like I said, I think she handled it, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty remarkably well. I agree. Also, by the way, Maria Taylor's doing this sideline for three games and five. She was at the Northwestern Purdue game. She's at the Florida State Virginia Tech game. Hats off to her. In terms of the actual Alabama game, did you read anything more into it than Wow, two is a really good quarterback? No, I mean, I thought Louisville's going to really struggle. The only thing I will say, because I thought you saw Tua has a ton of talent, no doubt about it. Uh, we saw some of his ability to escape and his wheels, a little different runner than, than Jalen, who's you know also a phenomenal athlete. The thing that I, I suspect could happen, it may not happen until they play Auburn, because I think Auburn's about the only team you know, on this schedule that they have in the regular season that has the kind of athletes to kind of hang with them. It, who knows? I, I don't think LSU, LSU is going to get them in Baton Rouge. LSU definitely has a really good defense, but I don't know if LSU has enough firepower to stay with them. But I do think you could see games where he's going to have some turnovers, whether it's fumbles or throw picks or make some bad decisions. I think they, there will be a, some more, I don't say boom or bust, but I think there's going to be a, the ceiling is higher. I think the floor is going to be higher with Tua. He's played less than Jalen. His style is a little more freewheeling. I think there's some reads. I mean, you talk to people who are, are inside the Alabama program. There was some stuff that worked out in the national title game that was very fortunate it did, where there was like a bad, a bad read that turned into a touchdown and different things like that. Where And it's going to get better as he continues to get playing time. But don't be surprised if you see some you know, as, as spectacular as he's going to be. Don't be surprised if you also see some really shaky stuff in there too. Yeah. I mean, I just think in this entire run, this entire dynasty, they have never had this much firepower on offense. Those receivers are great. Those running backs are great. Kirk Herbstreet said a couple times, you know, before the decision was made that if, if Tua drops out there on the, on the opening drive, Watch out, because Alabama's going to score 45, 50 points on everybody this year, which is just not how they used to win games. So, look, I'm not suggesting they call off the season. Auburn's really good. Georgia's really good. Maybe LSU's really good. So we'll see what happens. But it's just it's interesting that this far into the run, right, 10 years into the run, that they are only now adding this component of a superstar quarterback. Changing gears, Bruce, you tried to warn us about the situation at UCLA that Chip Kelly was inheriting and the possibility for a pretty rough season. But I think even you were counting on that Cincinnati game to be one of the wins. I also wasn't counting on Wilton Spade to get knocked out of the game, though. He didn't play all that long. Yeah, you know, look, they probably have more more talent on the defensive side of the ball right now 
and they were like 122nd in the country last year on defense. So, again, I, I think this team is going to struggle to get bowl eligible. I would expect them to get drilled this weekend against against OU because certainly that's what happened uh, for Lane Kiffin and Lane Kiffin's team may have may have more firepower on it right now than what Chip has. But you and I both were at his first game as a head coach up at uh, Boise when they yep. just got shut down. Now, he had been around that Oregon team before. That Oregon team was in better shape. They maybe the offensive line had some issues that night, but uh, but at least they had some weapons in this group. To definitely, I think it's very limited. And I don't know if you're a UCLA or you just a UCLA fan. Go okay. We got to be patient. This is not going to get fixed overnight. By the way, that uh, 2009 Oregon Boise State game you're talking about with the Legarrett Le- Blunt punch is mm-hmm. probably the best example I could possibly give of something we were talking about earlier, where you can have a rough opening game and still go on to have a great season. They won the Pac-12 that year, and I remember coming away from that first game with everybody thinking their season's over. They can't do anything on offense. They just their their star running back is going to be suspended for. At the time, it sounded like he was going to suspend it for the season. I do remember that he came back. Uh, and, of course, we didn't yet know that Michael James would be who he was. But anyway, yeah, Oklahoma could not have looked better against your FAU fighting owls. Lane Kiffin said afterward he can't imagine there's a better team in the country. Kyler Murray didn't doing good things, but basically everybody on that team was doing good things. I think I may have underestimated their ability to move on without uh, Baker Mayfield. By the way, how did they become my FAU Owls? Because you were you just had that big uh, Lane Kiffin uh, Q and A on Friday. Okay, okay, yes. So this is fair enough. That's how they're they're my FAU Owls. I didn't get to see any of that game. That was on opposite us. I did. I thought it would be way closer than that. Uh, I did th- too. That actually was probably my biggest surprise of of the games that I picked week one. I think. Now I I thought Michigan would beat Notre Dame. But I thought Oklahoma would have their hands full with FAU. And during those games, usually uh, during my games, I'll usually have my brother text me on one or two games just to keep an eye on what's going on. And I was like, I don't even know. Within like five minutes, I was like, whoa, it's 21 to nothing. And then it was like 28 to nothing. And just every time I looked at my phone, it was like 35 to nothing. Just so you got to see more of it than I do. What do you make of Kyler Murray? Well, it was, over, it was over pretty quickly, so it's not like I kept watching. But uh, Kyler Murray looked good. Rodney Anderson certainly looked good. Kyler Murray definitely, it, it's kind of what you thought. He just brings a completely different dimension to that offense. But let's also just talk about the fact that FAU, you know, last season was scoring 50 points a game by the end of, end of it, if not more. Oklahoma's defense the last time we saw them in the Rose Bowl could not have been worse and they shut them down uh, obviously different quarterback now for FAU but it's not like they really ever got anything going now it does make me wonder a little bit that if we just got a little too carried away with all those big points and all those uh, you know I think they had a game where they had 800 yards last season that you got to step back and remind yourself FAU is in Conference USA right this is not the American, the you know the the so-called Power Six conference, that there is usually going to be a pretty massive talent discrepancy between a team like Oklahoma and any Conference USA team. So how come this? I'm not disagreeing with you, but I want to just I don't even know this is even devil's advocate. But FAU actually has a bunch of guys who are like four-star guys who had started out their careers 
Javon Durant was playing his first game. He was at West Virginia and run with anybody. Former four-star guy from South Florida. You know, their other receiver started his career out at Texas. Singletary's could play in any league. Quarterback Chris Robinson. I don't think he would have beat out Kyler Murray, but he was a four-star guy who was at OU. It's not like they don't have those kind of players. Saying that to transition to this, there was nothing fluky about what what App State did at on the road at Penn State. I mean, they're coming from the Sun Belt, and we've seen them give Tennessee all they can handle. We certainly saw them when they were at a lower level knock off Michigan. So. Again, Scott Satterfield's able to do it. Why, you know, I hear where you're coming from, but there are plenty of examples of teams not named App State who can go in and go toe-to-toe with somebody and hang with them, if not beat them. No, you're right. Um, I, I'm just saying that uh, it was just a little bit of a rem- I, I mean, I think his offense was so good last year, and, he, and he's obviously such an acclaimed offensive coordinator that we just – overlooked the fact that they were putting up all those big numbers against Conference USA opponents or who was Akron they blew out in the bowl game. Yes. Uh, you know, this was a little bit of a reality check, to say the least. But it also just may mean that Oklahoma was really, really good. Uh, we will see. Let's wrap up with a feature that we used to do last season, perhaps a bit inconsistently. But it gives us a chance to spotlight maybe some of those under-the-radar stories that get lost over the weekend. Our shout-outs. Why don't you go first, Stu? Okay. Well, there's a couple different ones. I can, I'm just, can I do two? You can do two. You know what that means? That gives me more time to prepare. Okay. So I'm going to give it to two coaches who had heck of a um, starts to their season after rough seasons last year. Hawaii's Nick Rolovich and BYU's Kalani Sataki. Hawaii 3-9 and nine last year. New quarterback Cole McDonald has been on fire through two games, or they've played two games already. You could say what you want about beating Colorado State but Navy is always really good, and they scored 59 on him the other day. So clearly that's a team headed in the right direction. Shout out to him. Shout out to Kalani Sataki, whose BYU team just imploded last season, went 4-9, seemed completely incompetent on offense under when Ty Detmer was their coordinator. They play Arizona. Both of us picked them to win the Pac-12 South, I believe. Their defense completely shuts down Khalil Tate as a runner. And their offense looked pretty good, too, and appear to be headed back in the right direction. Good one. That's good stuff. I'm going to give it, and this is a little, just because I was around it so much this weekend, I'm going to give it to the Maryland players. What they've been through has been really, really trying and challenging for them emotionally. And I thought to see them up close, just to see like how overjoyed they were, and it was a roller coaster of the day. You know, they go, they get up a big lead on Texas, and then all of a sudden Texas runs off 22 straight points. Then they're losing. Then there's a long, relatively long weather delay that they got to deal with. The conditions were not great. It was steamy, humid as could be, you know, early in the game. And then when they come back on the field, FedEx field where the Redskins play is kind of a dump, and it does not drain well. And so it was like playing in soup. And the defense stepped up and got turnovers. I thought um, just to see how those guys responded, uh, it was it was pretty awesome. You know, I think we get we get kind of sanitized a lot of times when we watch games on TV, and you hear the storylines, and you just kind of glaze over. But to know about the tragedy those kids have had to deal with up close, and all the other stuff around it, and there's a lot of messy stuff around it. You know, you had to be happy for those players. Absolutely. 
this week. You're coming here, aren't you? I am coming up to the Bay Area. That's right. I assume you don't need a place to stay. I assume they're putting you and Joe and Brady Quinn up at like the uh, maybe the, the Palo Alto Four Seasons, something to that effect. I don't know what's in Joe's contract. We'll see. Maybe Brady and I will stay there. By the way, I was tempted. You had a tweet that, that showed up on my timeline during the weather delay. And it was something where I heard it. Like So the way the game works is I, like once they close my mic, you know, I can't get back in. Like those guys can talk to me and I can talk back, but no one's going to hear it other than my producer. And so Brady had said some took a little dig at me when I threw it back to those guys and you said something, you, you, you either retweeted it or something. And I was, I was tempted to tweet back, you know, Stu, you're right. You were all right about him all along. And, uh, but I was, ah, this get, this may get misconstrued. People think I'm saying it seriously or not, but well, the, the, I know one thing I said that I haven't lived up to yet, which is given your propensity to bring these lightning delays wherever you go, uh, that I would start referring to you on this podcast as the Thunder God. Yeah. Um, you know what? This weekend I checked the forecast, a 0% chance of precipitation in Palo Alto, so I feel good about that. If you got a lightning delay in Palo Alto... I would have to seriously question whether you really are a weather god because it never rains here uh, in this time of year. Uh, unfortunately, we won't be able to hang out because I'm hitting the road myself for a pretty cool doubleheader Max Olsen and I will be doing. Now, granted, Khalil Tate kind of took a little bit of the buzz off the first game in this, but I still want to see Ed Oliver. So we're headed to Houston to see Arizona-Houston at uh, in the early window and then headed to College Station for Clemson A&M that night all right sounds like it'll be fun um so you're not going to be around thursday night well yeah i will be around thursday night you want maybe we should talk about this after the podcast okay okay uh, we'll make i'll have my people call your people so i think yeah. our, our readers are, are still getting i know it's a holiday weekend our readers are still getting back on the the schedule that we keep during the season we we, we record on mondays so if you've got questions you want to ask us either in general or off the weekend's games, make sure you send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com by Monday morning, and we will incorporate those going forward. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. Come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. Talk about